The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. I have a perplexing question for you to start off with. Can Christians do yoga? Now, the, the question may be uh, more based on flexibility and theology. I'm not sure, but that is a question that we could po- possibly dig into. So look at these little uh, different pictures we have here on the screen. Um, you see some of them have holy yoga. Um, so we've taken yoga and made it a, a Christian practice. Uh, you can tell some of them don't like the idea of Christian's yoga because there's the lady in front of the cross, but there is a snake crawling up her spine. That's not scoliosis. That is a picture of the snake. So she is participating in something that would be wicked in that person's opinion. Uh, and then there's the other one, which I can't see real good, but it, I think that I was intrigued by that one because it literally says, if I remember right, it's Christ and then it's Oga and the Y is missing. So that would be more Christ Toga than yoga. And that's a whole different kind of party. So anyway, I'm not sure how that goes. But when we do consider these types of things, the question inevitably comes up of things that we have today that maybe we may not give a whole lot of thinking to, maybe not a lot of credence to, maybe we should. Maybe we should begin to ask ourselves, why do we do the things that we do? And what is it okay for me to participate in? And what is it not okay for me to participate in? Now, when you begin to talk about something like the practice of yoga, I don't think there's anyone who would argue the fact that yoga finds its roots in Hindu spirituality. That is very true. That, that's, that's the foundation of that whole practice. The whole chanting, the whole focus, the meditation all has a spiritual element to it. There are some people that say that practicing yoga is an open door to uh, psychic influences, spiritual warfare that you're inviting into your life if you participate in these things. But the question then would begin to arise of what is the difference in yoga and stretching? I mean, when does it cease to be some kind of physical exercise of stretching and when does it become yoga? Um, And I think that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. There's actually a lady who used to teach yoga and she blames the practice for her falling into depression and alcoholism. She became a Christian after that. She rejected yoga and she is a a person who would just go out there and say that no, no Christian should ever practice yoga. But at the same time, this lady still leads Christian stretching in her churches and other places, and she markets herself very well. So she's still doing the same things. She's just not calling it yoga anymore. And so maybe there's where the divide is. Maybe the divide is what our focus is on when we are doing things. In other words, what's our intentionality about these practices? I think that we would all agree that just because you show up here doesn't make you a Christian. Um, Just because you give money to a church doesn't make you a Christian. So there has to be this intentionality. There has to be this transformation. There has to be this, this thing that you are trying to accomplish through a power that is outside of you. So I would say that when you go into it, maybe you're not calling it yoga. Maybe you're calling it stretching. But the point is we could all line up and we could open up microphones up here and we could all have a difference of opinion and we could do it 
it for several days and still we would not all be on the same page. We would walk out of here and some people would say, this is what is true. And other people would walk out and say, this is what is true. The problem is we don't have clear cut black and white answers in the scripture that say, do not stretch, okay? Or whatever, or do not stretch and call it this. The problem is it becomes one of those areas where the scripture doesn't directly address the act. Now, some people come over here and goes, it absolutely addresses it because it says this, 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 and this. Yes, it does, but it's not addressing yoga. It's talking about maybe spirituality, maybe paganism. And so some people would line up underneath that. So the, the problem is when we begin to talk about things like this, what happens is we begin to focus on things that are not supposed to be our focus, okay? They are issues that lie outside of what is foundational to Christianity. And what happens is when we forget what is foundational, we get caught up in all of these arguments and all these disagreements and all these divisions that really should not be causing that kind of division. And so that's what Paul wants us to focus on in chapter 14. You remember where we were last week and we talked about how Paul has opened this up about we should not judge each other. Okay, And in that, we talked, or uh, I think Kyle talked at length about the theological triage. Y'all remember that? The three different orders. Uh, I'm going to show you a, a, just a picture here. You're not going to be able to really read it on the screen. But there's basically a pyramid, if you will, and it's divided into three different sections. The first section is what we call first order issues. The second is second order. And the third is third order. That's pretty easy to follow, right? And so the first order issues, when we talk about first order issues, we're talking about doctrines that are central and essential to the Christian faith. We're talking about the full deity and humanity of Christ. We can't disagree on that. That's, that's scriptural. The Trinity, the picture throughout scripture, even though the word Trinity doesn't show up in scripture, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit over and over and over again. So we know there is one God in three persons portrayed for us in scripture. We can't disagree with that. We can't, we can't be together in a church and disagree on that. That's fundamental to Christianity. Justification by faith. There's nothing added to the cross. That is foundational to Christianity. The authority of scripture. We can't disagree on that. That is foundational to what we believe. Now we move to second order issues. And that's not all the first order issues. There are many others, but those are just examples. Now, some examples of second order issues would be things like um, Baptists and Presbyterians disagree on the mode and practice of baptism, right? So Presbyterians see it more as a covenantal thing and that baptism represents this, this intentionality of the parents to raise their children, um, that it's a covenant that they're being baptized into. But both Baptists and Presbyterians believe that salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It is by grace alone. There's nothing else. Baptism does not save you. But the practice of it, Baptists say, a person shouldn't be baptized until they have confessed Jesus Jesus with their mouth and they have repented of their sins and they are true believers. And so then you're baptized and Presbyterians think of it more as a covenantal thing, a replacement of circumcision, if you will, in the New Testament era. And so it's a picture of the commitment of the family towards the principles of Christianity and a commitment to Christ. So you know what? We may go out there and agree in the way we present the gospel, but we may disagree on how we practice some things that the church practices. Therefore, if you believe that your baby should be baptized, um, then you're probably not going to go to a Baptist church. If you believe in believer's baptism, 
as I do. You're probably not gonna go to a Presbyterian church. Although you probably agree with 90, maybe even more percent of the theology that'll be taught, you're gonna disagree with enough that it's gonna affect the way that you practice. That's a second order issue. Now, the third order issue are things that Paul is addressing here in chapter 14. Third, uh, third order issues are things like dancing, what kind of things you might eat, whether it's okay to smoke cigars, whether it's okay to drink alcohol, whether it's okay to go do other things. These are things that are not directly addressed in scripture. They are not foundational to Christianity. And there may be difference of opinions in those two things, but yet we still worship together and we still go out and present the gospel in the same way because on first order and second order, we completely agree. So the third order issues are issues within the church that we may disagree on that Paul is going to say, these things should not be your focus. These things should not divide you because you agree on too much to allow these things to become your focus. Okay, so that's where Paul's going with this. With that in mind, let's see the urgency which, what, with which Paul talks. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to how Paul develops this throughout this passage. And I want you to pay very close attention. Do you hear anything that seems repetitive? Okay, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So therefore, he's bringing in this passage, he's talked about we should not judge each other, right? I have no right as a strong to judge the weak, or I have no right as a weaker person in the faith to judge the strong, right? So now he's coming into this idea of he's speaking mainly to those who are strong in their faith. Again, don't take strong and weak as Paul thinks these people are really spiritual and these people are not very spiritual. It's more like working out. Okay, I could go to the gym and I'm probably the weakest person in the gym on some days, right? And on some days, I'm the second weakest person in the gym. But on those days, I go in there and why am I? It's, I'm still committed to going to the gym. I'm still committed to working out. I'm still growing my muscles and growing my commitment and my discipline, okay? But there are other people that can lift way more than I can. So that's the perspective of Paul using strong and weak. There are some that are coming into the faith. They're still growing in their faith. There are some that have been in that faith for a long time. They are very strong in their faith, okay? So they're gonna have different perspectives because this is always a process. And let's agree also that this is always a process. Why? Because as Josh was saying, we need to focus on the fact that we need to be sharing the gospel with our neighbors. If we're sharing the gospel with our neighbors and those that God brings in contact, guess what? We are constantly in this process of bringing people in who don't understand Christianity who have no foundation. So we always have to be aware of these practices and realize just because I've been in the faith for 40 years and I feel very grounded in what I believe, I should never look down on anyone who's coming into the faith. I should instead look and go, how can I help them along? Not how can I put a stumbling block in their way? How can I help them along in their journey to focus in on Christ and to grow in their faith? Because it's all about that centrality of the joy and the hope and the salvation and the blessing that we have in our relationship with Christ. And Paul wants us to make sure that we don't lose the focus on what is essential to our perspective of Christianity. So Paul here is trying to get our focus back on track. Notice that he tells us as his readers here that we, our focus shouldn't be on and what our focus should be on. Look at that again in verse 13. 
Therefore, let us not pass judgment, which is what he spent most of the early part of 14 talking about, but rather now, so don't do this, but do this. Never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. In essence, Paul is saying that we should decide or that we should make a decision to never prioritize the freedoms that we have in Christ or to prioritize the liberties that we have in Christ over the spiritual well-being of another brother or sister in Christ. So in other words, yes, we have all of these freedoms because I'm in Christ. I am no longer made clean by observing certain laws. I am made clean because Christ is clean and I am in Christ. And I understand that and I embrace that. And there are freedoms that come with that. But I should never be so focused on my freedoms that I am forgetting about the well-being of another brother and sister in Christ. And so this picture that he paints for us helps us to understand what our role is within the church. It's not my job to get my brother or sister to accept all the things that I have accepted in my faith in Jesus Christ. If I do, you know what I'm doing? Paul says here, I am encouraging my brother or sister to sin if I am encouraging them to accept the freedoms that I have accepted. Why? Because now I've taken the focus on what, off of what it's supposed to be on. The focus is the relationship with Christ. My focus should be, you know what? Here's where I am and I know why I stand here, but you need to go to your prayer closet. You need to get before the Lord. You need to dig in your scriptures. You need to ask some brothers and sisters to pray with you to figure out what you need to do in that situation. What you need to do in your relationship with Christ. You need to hear from the Lord. If I remove that element. And I say, man, you should welcome this into your life. Why? Because you're free in Christ. Now, all of a sudden, their relationship with Christ is based on my model instead of what Christ modeled for them. And that's what Paul is warning us against here. That should never, ever be. However, there is a difference in trying to get someone to do something that I'm doing and having a reasoned discussion with them about what I am doing. What Paul is saying here is he's not saying if it's okay for you to drink alcohol and you like to have a glass of wine, if you're at a restaurant, Paul's not saying don't ever, ever have a glass of wine at a restaurant because you might offend another person. That's not the kind of life that he's calling you to live. He's not saying you have all these freedoms in Christ, but never, ever use them because someone else may not have them. And so therefore they're all null and void. That's not freedoms that you can use if you can't ever use them. You see what I'm saying? So here's what he's saying is whenever this issue comes up and someone says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You're not a Christian if you do that. Number one, they're coming from a wrong perspective because salvation isn't based on these things. Salvation, that first order issue says it's grace alone. It's not what I do or don't do that makes me a Christian. Therefore, that's a wrong perspective and that's wrong of them to do that. But it might be a weaker brother. They don't understand all of these things. And so what I should do is give them a reasoned perspective and say, listen, here's where I stand. Here's the scriptures that I've struggled through. Here's where my perspective is. I believe I have this freedom in Christ and I know that I feel in good faith and my right standing with the Lord that it's okay for me to practice this. And you need to find out for yourself if it's okay for you. But I tell you what, because this offends you, I'm not going to do this in front of you anymore because I don't want to hinder you in your faith. 
that is a perfectly reasonable perspective. In other words, I don't go out there and just not do something that I feel like I have the freedom to do just because I might offend someone. I don't do it when I know that I will offend someone. If I know that that will offend someone in that setting, then Paul is saying you should not use that freedom in that setting because it is more important that that brother and sister not have anything impeding their growth and their relationship with Christ than it is for you to exercise the liberties. Again, what's the focus of the kingdom? all these liberties that we experience in this life or is the focus the kingdom of God? And so that's what Paul is calling us back to, to focus in on these things. See, as we all are sorting out our own lives, as we are growing in our relationship with Christ, it is way too easy for us, if we are not careful, to make things harder for our brothers and sisters in Christ to grow than it is to make it easier for them when we start focusing on these third order issues as if they are first or second order issues. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So again, Paul says right here, listen, if you wanna talk about liberties, man, I'll tell you, I know where I stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. I am convinced of that. Let me tell every one of you, you should be convinced of the liberties that you have. You shouldn't practice them because you're like, well, I'm just free in Christ so I can do whatever I want. No, 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 that's not it. That's not far enough. You need to go further than that and you need to be convinced. Why? Convinced because there are facts. Convinced because you've studied it. Convinced because you've prayed through it. You've thought through it. And you know where you stand in the position of Christ. And therefore, you know the liberties, you know the freedoms that you have, you know the restrictions that you have because of Christ. Because here's the thing, not all of us will be able to enjoy all the things that are liberties in Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will say, yes, I've given this liberty to these, but this liberty is not for you. My grace for you is to not partake in these things. And that's the grace I've given to you. And so we can't just make a blanket statement. If we have a blanket statement, all we need is these boxes that we can check off. We don't need the Holy Spirit. All we need is a spiritual checklist. And we can go through and say, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. That's all I have to worry about. But no, the very essence of scripture drives us back to our prayer closets to get before the Lord, to humble ourselves and say, Lord, show me the way in which I should walk. And you know what? That's where we find our freedoms. That's where we find our restrictions. Paul knows where he stands. Look how he continues. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, that's an interesting statement. Let's see how he continues in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, he's drawing our minds back to what is the real issue here? It's not about eating and drinking. It's about the kingdom of God. And so why in the world would you do something that would impede someone else in their growth, in their perspective, in their understanding of the kingdom of God? It's not about your liberties. It's about the kingdom of God. And remember the model that Christ set for us. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. That's so essential for us. Now, we can think about this issue that Paul brings up of clean and unclean, right? And we can say, what, what a first century issue that was. But would you agree with me today that the 
whole debate on what foods are clean and unclean still exists in our day and time, right? I mean, I, I can tell you just last week, uh, we were going to try and figure out where we were going to go and eat. And Brandy said, she named one place. I said, too expensive. And my son named another place. I was like, it's too Mexican. I just, Mexican food doesn't sit well with me, right? So I'm like, that, that's too Mexican, too true Mexican. Tex-Mex I can handle. True Mexican doesn't does work on me. And so we're talking through this. All of a sudden it began this, this, this I mean, it was like a, not, a debate that turned into an argument. And I was like, guys, there's McDonald's right there. No! And I was like, you know what? When I was a kid, and many of you remember this, McDonald's was like a treat to go to. I had birthday parties at McDonald's. And you know what? If you had your birthday party at McDonald's, all of your friends were gonna come because they knew they got a Happy Meal. They knew they got that little toy. They knew there was gonna be ice cream or a milkshake that went with it. And you got to go play on the playground. I remember my mom telling me, when you get your report card, if you have all A's, we're going to McDonald's. <laughs> Today, it's a threat. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna take y'all to McDonald's. No, trans fats, hydrogenated oils. We can't go to McDonald's. I mean, would you agree that it's almost like we have this same debate raging in our society again? Now, maybe the issue is not the same as Paul's, right? Because Paul's talking about doing things from a religious conviction, maybe where we're talking about doing things from a healthy perspective. But at the same time, let's remember that very easily we cross that line. I can remember being in, in college and in seminary. One of my favorite places to eat, don't judge me, was Taco Bell because it was cheap. And I don't care what you say, it was good. It tasted good. The thing I got was Mexi Melts. Y'all remember those? I don't even think they're on the menu anymore, but you can still order them. And you can get a Mexi Melt and I would get five of them. Five of them, because they're little bitty. I mean, when they were small and I would eat them. And I remember this one girl in my class who said, I can't believe you're eating that. You should just drop that in the toilet and eliminate the middleman. And I was like, what kind of judgment are you putting on me? I mean, but there almost is this air in our society even today that if you eat a certain way, you are more spiritual, you're better than other people who don't consider those things, right? And so as much as we would like to think that we have progressed since the first century, we actually haven't so much. Think about this. The way forward is to recognize that things can and do become unclean and even evil, not because of what they are in themselves, but because of how people regard them. Now, here's what I'm saying. Paul says very clearly that things that are okay can become not okay. Why? Simply because of the way you view them. Not only do they not become okay, Paul's gonna eventually get to this part in this passage where he says they actually become evil. Not only are they unclean, they actually can become evil. Why? Because of people's perspectives of them. What is Paul talking about here? Well, what he says in verse 14 is that food can and does become unclean when someone considers it to be unclean. Now in verse 20, he's gonna tell us that it even becomes evil because you can cause someone to stumble 
because of eating whatever that food may be. Now, let's understand where Paul comes from. Paul firmly believes that nothing is unclean. But when someone regards something as unclean, the situation changes. Now, does that mean that Paul goes around eating pork all the time? No. When we're talking about clean and unclean, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about what is necessary to be made righteous before God. Clean and unclean was what the Jews had to do before they could ever go in and worship God. So what Paul is firmly grounded in is that what I eat or what I don't eat does not make me righteous or unrighteous before God. Even Jesus said what? It's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what, yeah, it's what's on the inside. And so Jesus was helping us to focus on what the true focus of the law was about, which is that God is a righteous God and we need to be made perfect and fully righteous before we can enter his presence. And Paul is fully convinced that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ fulfills that law completely. And so he knows that eating certain foods does not make him unclean because Christ has overcome all of these things, okay? That's the perspective that Paul has there. Now, if a person's conscience persuades him that something is wrong, such as eating a certain kind of food, what Paul is saying here is he should not do it. Therefore, if these Jews who are coming into this faith in Christ, and there are still, the law is still in full effect, okay? So Jesus said, I didn't come to push away the law. I came to fulfill it. So the law is still good. The problem is there are certain aspects of the law that were completely fulfilled in Christ. That's what we learn in the book of Hebrews, where the writer helps us to understand the fulfillment of these laws. Therefore, we don't have to sacrifice things anymore that the law requires us to. Why? Because there's been a perfect sacrifice. We don't have to go and make ourselves righteous by eating certain things because why? Christ has made us righteous. Now, therefore, the moral law still in full effect. I can't go and do whatever I want to do because Christ has just paid for all my sins. That's not the same thing. And so we have to understand the law is still in full effect. It's just that when we are in Christ, Christ has already accomplished the law. Therefore, there are things we don't have to do anymore because of what Christ accomplished. That's what Paul is trying to help us understand. We should never do anything if we think it's wrong. Even, listen to me, even if we are misguided in that. You hear that? If I believe that it's wrong for a woman to wear pants, okay, that's not a really good idea because that's me putting it on you. If I believe, if I'm fully engaged, if, I, if I'm a woman and I believe that it's wrong for me to wear pants, I should never, ever wear pants. Now, can I make the argument that that's, that's a cultural thing that has nothing to do with your relationship with Christ? Absolutely. But you know what? Paul gets to the end of this passage. What is that last statement in verse 23? Anything that's not done in faith is sin. If you do anything and you're not fully convinced that you have the freedom to do that in Christ because you have done your due diligence if you understand the scripture and you have gone before God in the prayer closet and you are yielding to the Holy Spirit, if there is anything that you have a hesitation about, whether it is true that it's clean or unclean, doesn't matter for you. If there's the question in your mind, you shouldn't do it. I have people that come to me before and they'll say to me, they'll ask me a question. Do you think it's all right for me to drink alcohol? And I, I look at them square in the eye and say, absolutely not. And they're like, how can you say that? I said, because you asked me the question. And they're like, what do you mean? You're not fully convinced. 
You're asking me to tell you what you should do or you shouldn't do. You need to go to another source and ask that question. Now I can point you to scriptures that you can look at. I can tell you how you should pray about this. I can tell you some people maybe you need to talk to, but here's the thing. You need to be fully convinced of what's right for you to do and the freedoms that we have in Christ. So if we are to go over to the book of Galatians, we would actually see where Paul warns Gentile Christians against becoming like Jews in order to be a part of the Christian church. In this passage, Paul is appealing to the Gentiles who are exercising these freedoms that they have in Christ in front of their Jewish brothers. And listen to me, they're even, here's the key to this. Here's the key. Don't miss this part right here. When Paul is addressing this to the Roman church, what is happening is the Gentiles are actually trying to make it a requirement for the Jews coming in that they eat the way they eat. Matter of fact, we even have some stories from that day and time where there was many Gentile churches who would say, before you can be a part of our church, eat this ham sandwich. Why? Because then you've proven that you've walked out of Judaism and you've embraced Christianity. Paul is saying that is not what Christianity is about. It is not requirements that you participate or not participate in these freedoms of Christ to gain access to the fellowship. We are all on a different trajectory. We're all on the same trajectory in our relationship with Christ. We're all in different processes of that trajectory. We're all headed to the same place because it is the Holy Spirit that leads us there and it is the culmination of our spiritual life that gets us there. But we are all in different places in that. And Paul is warning us about that. And so genuine love, remember, this is how Paul really starts off this section. Way back earlier chapter, chapter 12, Paul talks about this genuine love that we have and this genuine love that should be the essence of our Christianity. Ultimately, why should the strong not eat whatever they want to in front of the weak? Because of this genuine love. And, and when they do things like that, the strong are no longer walking in love which are two things that Paul loves to use in his letters, walking and the idea of how we practice our Christian life and love, which should always be the focus and the centrality of our Christian life. And when we are thinking about our freedoms over the progression of our brothers and sisters in their walk with Christ, we are no longer walking, participating in love, the direction of what the Christian life is supposed to be. So for Christians, love is the standard and love is the motive. Paul told us this back in chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10, very clearly. So Christ's love was so great that what did he do? Did he demand everything that was his or did he give up the freedoms that he had? What did he do? He gave up those freedoms, didn't he? He left the place of glory to come down to a place of depravity. He laughed the power of his deity and he, even though his deity came with him, he did not use all that was afforded to him in his deity as he practiced in his humanity. And that scripture even says in one place, he emptied himself of these things. In other words, he didn't do or demand everything that was his as the son of God, fully God, because of what he was doing for others. You see that? So if he's the model, then all of a sudden, that's what we're looking at as we begin to practice our Christian life. So Paul is saying, if Christ did that and he's the model, is it too much to ask us to refrain from using or expressing some of our freedoms if it benefits another? 
Look how he continues in verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So I want you to see very clearly what Paul says there in verse 16. That's, that's important. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He's saying, do not focus on third order issues. Oh, it's so great that I have this freedom in Christ to, you know, wear shirts that don't button all the way down. That's a freedom that I have in Christ. That's, it's awesome. I can't believe he would wear a shirt to church that doesn't button all the way down. Okay, here's the thing. Don't let what you value be spoken of in an evil term. You know what he's saying there? Don't let it become the focus of your conversation. Don't let it become the focus of your relationship. Don't be, let it become the focus of your spirituality. These are not intended to be the focus. What does he say next? For the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of eating and drinking or what kind of shirt you're wearing. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. How? How does it say there? The Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? Our guide our intercessor, the one who leads us, the one who convicts us, the one who shows us what our liberties are in Christ. It's about understanding what the focus of Christianity is to be about. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Let me just tell you something. Verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 are what Paul want us to understand. Everything before it is setting up 16, 17, 18, and 19. And everything after it is just reiterating what he wants us to focus on, 16, 17, 18, and 19. This is Paul's main point. I'm going to come back to that in a second and show you exactly what I'm talking about. How many of y'all know C.H. Spurgeon? You've heard that term before, right? You know who that is? C.H. Spurgeon, pastor back in the day. Well, it's very interesting. Um, there's a story that you can find about C.H. Spurgeon. And if you know much about C.H. Spurgeon, you know that he had an affinity for cigars. So much so that one time someone confronted him on that and said, how do you know that it's okay to smoke cigars? He goes, well, as long as you're not smoking in excess, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And they said, well, what is excess? He said, no more than one at a time. <laughs> He was even known um, to uh, kind of prod his students with this. One day they were going out on an excursion and the students got into the wagon with him. I guess they drove wagons back then, if not a car, but I don't think they had cars then. So I guess they all loaded into a wagon as the story goes. And um, as soon as they got into it, this was early in the morning, they were going out for a day of frivolity. Is that a good word? I don't know. And immediately when they got in there, the kids started, the kids, you know, they were probably 18, 19 years old. They started lighting up their pipes and their cigars. And C.H. Spurgeon turned and looked at them and said, gentlemen, are you not so ashamed to be smoking so early in the morning? And all of them just felt this sense of like, oh, I've offended him. And they all start quietly putting out their cigars and putting their pipes away. About the time they did, he pulled out his cigar box. He pulled out his cigar. He lit it and just started enjoying it. And finally, one of the students got brave enough and said to him, I thought you said that we aren't supposed to be 
smoking this early in the morning. And literally his words were this. He said, oh no, I did not say I objected. I asked if you were not ashamed. And it appears that you were because you've all put your pipes away. <laughs> but do you see what he was trying to teach his students? You don't do something just because someone else is doing it. And you shouldn't not do something just because someone else tells you not to do it. See, that's the point that I want you to walk away from here because if you hear this just from our, your own perspective as you read it without thinking through it, Paul is not saying, do not practice your liberties. What he's saying is you should never force your liberties on anyone else. You should know where you stand. So if you have this liberty that Christ has given to you, he's not saying don't practice it, but he's saying you shouldn't look at and condemn and belittle someone else because they don't practice it the same way you do. You see that? And if it becomes an offensive thing, then you should just not practice that liberty around that person. Okay? C.H. Spurgeon actually was preaching a sermon one time and he had a, a guest speaker, a guy, a guy that, by the name of Dwight Pentecost. <laughs> what a great last name, right? Pentecost. I mean, how, how spiritual do you have to be to have that last name? And anyway, he was there and Pentecost, Dwight L. Moody, these are guys that were contemporaries of C.H. Spurgeon. They all were vehemently against smoking and a bit against tobacco use. And anyway, he was there, even though they were great friends and C.H. Spurgeon was actually teaching on being careful of little sins that work their way into your life. And he asked Mr. Pentecost to come up and deliver an illustration. So he gets up, he delivers the illustration, but at the same time, he starts preaching hard against tobacco and tobacco use. So everybody in that church knows that C.H. Spurgeon smoked cigars religiously, right? <laughs> this is what C.H. Spurgeon said after he got back up after Pentecost sat down. And I think this is key. Now, again, remember, this is so gracious. This is in his church. One of his friends has gotten up there and then taken this cheap shot at him. Listen to what he says. There's a lot of wisdom in it. Well, dear friends, you know that some men can do to the glory of God what to other men would be sin. And notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> If anybody can show me in the Bible the command, thou shalt not smoke, I am ready to keep it. But I have not found it yet. I find 10 commandments and it is as much as I can do to keep them. And I have no desire to make them into 11 or 12. The fact is I have been speaking to you about real sins, not about listening to mere quibbles and scruples. At the same time, I know that what a man believes to be sin becomes a sin to him and he must give it up because it says in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And that is the real point of what my brother Pentecost has been saying. Why a man may think that it is a sin to have his boots blacked. Well, then let it be given up by him and have them whitewashed. I wish to say that I am not ashamed of anything, whatever that I do. And I don't feel that smoking makes me ashamed. And therefore I mean to smoke to the glory of God. Now, you may disagree with what he says there. And I want you to understand very clearly where I'm coming from. I am not here to defend smoking. I am not here to encourage smoking. I'm not here to encourage anyone who is fighting any kind of addiction or any kind of sin or anything that may be holding them back and saying, hey, this is yours in Christ, go get it. That is not what I'm saying. Because for many of you, these things are off limits. And that is exactly 
what Paul is telling us and what C.H. Spurgeon is encouraging us as well in those words. The point is this. We need to wrap our minds around what Paul is really saying here. He told his understudy, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There's a whole world open to us and the freedoms that we have in Christ. Jesus taught that it's not what goes into a person's mouth, but what comes out that defiles him. But Paul was worried, Paul was worried that freedom could then become the focus. And when freedom becomes the focus, freedom becomes as bad as legalism. We should not do things or not do things, not not do things, okay? Because of what we see others doing or not doing. That should never be the standard of our Christian life. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Paul was not saying that sin is a matter of personal opinion. He was not teaching that as long as we think something is okay, it's okay for us. Not what he's saying. Scripture clearly teaches that certain things are wrong and off limits. Paul is only talking about things that are not mentioned in Scripture clearly as sin. He's talking about third order issues for us. In these issues, in these issues, the strong should act out of love, not out of their freedom. Paul's instruction is very clear. Do not allow your own freedom of conscience to destroy your brother or sister whom Christ died for. Trying to influence others to act against their conscience, that becomes a very serious matter. And this undermines your integrity as a strong believer. If Christ died to save them, is it not too much to ask others not to destroy them? This is a sin, not only against your brother, but Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, that when we act this way, it's a sin against Christ himself. Remember, as Paul says in verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteous living. The kingdom is not about eating and drinking. It's about peace and joy, which comes from where? What did he say? What did I highlight for you when we read it? It comes from where? The spirit. Those are things that the spirit delivers to us. Our actions should exemplify the focus of the kingdom. So pursuing the higher priorities is something approved by men and pleasing to God. That's what Paul tells us here in this passage. And look how he continues in verse 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Okay, again, the focus is on the kingdom of God and what helps my brother and sister along in their growth in Christ. Now look how it goes in 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, it's not about eating or drinking. It's about anything anything in that third order category. So if we are called, as he says in verse 19, to build each other up, then, then the conclusion is, verse 20, we should never destroy what God has built up. Do you see that? If the goal is to build them up, we should never have a focus or ha ever have a direction in our life where we are destroying what God 
is building up in them. In verse 19, he says that we should pursue what makes for peace. Although peace with God was central in Paul's thought, the peace he spoke of here was a peace that was to be experienced within the family of believers. Yes, the overarching idea of peace, it comes from God. But what Paul is focused in on is peace among the family, peace among the family of God. Look again at verse 21. He says, it is good not to do these things. Notice what he doesn't say. It is not good. Do you see the difference? He's saying it is good when you don't completely practice the freedoms that you have. But he never says the freedoms that you have are not good. That's very, very important for us to understand and to embrace. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking, but they should be avoided if they cause an offense. And you know that they're gonna cause an offense. So while freedom is a right that we have in Christ, it is not a guide for our conduct. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Love serves that purpose. Rights are to be laid aside in the interest of love. Paul says we have messed up when our freedoms in Christ become our guide for conduct. That should never be. What is the guide for conduct? The Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God, the model of Christ. That has to be our focus. In World War II, one of the greatest problems that our U.S. military faced, especially the Navy, was the German U-boats. I mean, they were deadly out there, especially as we were trying to get uh, all of our supplies, both military and supplies for our troops, to Europe to help the fight there. These U-boats would just pick these ships off one at a time. What they found, though, was if they could send all the ships in one big convoy, group them together, big ships, military battleships, also the cargo and supply ships all together, that they could avoid that because the U-boats were really good at picking off lone boats. But when they were in groups like that, they might be able to hit one, but then they would be destroyed before they could do anything to anyone else. And if one gets hit, they have help to assist them along. Now, here's the problem. Many of those boats were designed to get across the Atlantic really, really fast. And some of those cargo ships were really, really slow. But here's what they found. If we all stay together and we go at the pace of the slowest boat, we will get across this thing safely. But if the fast boats go on ahead, we'll have a lot of firepower there. We're not gonna have any food to eat. And we're not going to have a lot of ammunition for very long. So they found that it was better for them to all stay in a group and to move across the Atlantic carefully and that they would all have a better chance of arriving safely if that was the case. That is exactly what Paul is talking about here. The strong, do you have plenty of freedoms? Yes. Do you stand firm in those freedoms? Absolutely. But you know what? You might need to go at a slower pace for those weaker brothers and sisters that Christ has put into your life to help them along. Why? Because your freedom isn't the focus. It's the kingdom of God. It's your brothers and sisters. It's that genuine love. See, Paul emphasizes this in these last few verses. Look at verse 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's something that we all need to take home with us today to think about, to contemplate, and to embrace. Why? Because there are probably a lot of things that we do that we've just taken for granted that it's okay for us to do. Why? Because so-and-so does it. Brother so-and-so does it. My famous preacher that I like to listen to on the internet does it. So it must be okay. You're living in sin. Why? Because you haven't gone and asked God, is this what you have for me? Anything that's not done in faith. It doesn't even have to be a sin in itself. But if you haven't been convinced in your relationship with Christ that this is what you're supposed to do, Paul says we're living in sin. These issues, Paul says here, are best kept as private matters between that person and God. Again, this has everything to do with our relationship with God. Paul drives us back to that. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about your personal private relationship with God. And if you participate in any of these issues that have been brought up today, if you have any reservations in that at all, you are in sin. Have you ever heard someone say this? I know I probably shouldn't be doing this, but translation, I know I'm about to enter open rebellion, but why? Because that's exactly what Paul's saying. If you say to yourself, I know that I probably shouldn't be doing this. What you're saying is this is a gray area for me. I have not gone before the Lord and stand in firm conviction that this is okay for me. And I'm going to tread into this water anyway you're living in open rebellion and you're living in sin. That's what scripture says. Now, think about this for a moment. Let's look at the last part of that passage. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This has a much broader implication than just the context here. Think about this. Whatever is done without the conviction that God has approved it is by definition sin, right? God has called us to a life of faith. Would you agree with me? Would you agree with me that the basis of faith or something that is synonymous with faith is trust? So in other words, my faith in Christ means I trust that his sacrifice was good enough for me. I trust that his word is, there is an eternity for me and that he has secured eternal life. So faith and trust, these are the foundations of our salvation. If in our minds, there is any doubt regarding any action that is not blatant sin, automatically makes that action unacceptable for us. Okay? Now, this is how we should view things that we often call gray areas. This helps us to know that there is no such thing actually as a gray area. Why? Because gray areas become black and white areas when we go before the Lord. We should never live in gray areas. We should know this is approved or this is unapproved for us. Now, again, what does he say? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Do you think that Paul has sounded repetitive in this passage? Do you think that you've heard the same things over and over again? What you eat or what you drink is not the kingdom of God. 
do not destroy, do not destroy. Here, I want to show you something. Now, again, this is like the technical grammar kind of buildup of, of scripture, but it tells us the way the authors wrote in this day and time, it tells us what they wanted us to walk away with. This is called a chiasm, right? And a chiasm is a way they would structure a passage so that they would walk through it and they would repeat certain things on the outside and whatever was in the middle is what they want you to focus on. Look at this right here. In verse 13, he talks about judging. If you go to verse 22 through 23, he talks about judging. If you go to verse 13, the last part of it, he says, don't, you, don't become a stumbling block. In, in verse 21, he talks about stumbling again. In verse 14, he talks about the clean and unclean foods. In verse 20, the last part of it, he talks about clean and unclean foods. In verse 15, he says, he uses the word destroying. In verse 20a, he uses the word destroying. But in 15 or, or 16, 17, 18, and 19, he emphasizes peace and unity, peace and unity, peace and unity. In other words, Paul has structured this whole segment to help us understand these are the outlying issues, but what I want you to understand is that the Christian faith is about peace and unity. It's about preserving the peace and unity within the body of Christ. That's what he wants us to understand. Now think about this. Most likely Paul is writing this to the church in Rome. This was probably, if we have the date right, it was shortly after the Jews were allowed back in after all Jews were expelled from the city of Rome for a certain time. Now they are being allowed to come back in. And as they come back in, they find that Gentiles have overtaken their church. And not only that, they begin to see the way these Gentiles are eating and talking and celebrating. And you can imagine as they come in, they were probably shocked to see these things. Now also think about this. They probably walk in and many of these Jewish believers begin to think, we have made a huge mistake trusting in Christ. This is obviously not from God. I better return back to my Judaism because this is obviously not what, not what God intended. If these people are practicing what is obviously against the law of God. And Paul was saying is that if this happens, it's not just an offense to that person. It becomes an offense to the very death of Christ. It would be a reversal of priorities as he talks about in verse 17 to focus on food and drink instead of these major towering realities of God's kingdom, of God's justice, of God's peace, God's joy. It would be to pull down the very house that God is so carefully building up, as he says in verse 20. You see, these last two verses of the chapter offer a perspective of how faith is to be practiced in our life day in and day out. So think of it this way. Verse 23 is not so much a warning to make sure that you're always acting from a position of faith. It does that. But I think it also serves as a warning to the people who are indicted in verse 22. Go back and look at verse 22. The faith that you have, in other words, he's talking to the strong, the faith that you have, you have freedoms, you have liberties in Christ. Keep those between yourself and God. In other words, make sure that that is always kept in check with your relationship with God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
See, the people who have thought through those relevant issues and are happy to consume all kinds of food and drink, he's saying to them, don't put your brothers and sisters in Christ in the position of verse 23. You who are strong, you who know your liberties, you who know your freedoms, don't ever put your brothers and sisters that may be weaker in the faith in the position of verse 23. What does it say? Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Don't insist that all other Christians conform at once to the freedoms that you might have. Understand that we are all in different positions in our growth, in our relationship with Christ, in our spiritual maturity. This passage points us to that importance of our prayer lives as the foundation of our development spiritually, as our development in our relationship with Christ. It's not the practice of other believers that's the foundation. It is literally our relationship with Christ. And this isn't easy. It's gonna take a good deal of thought, a good deal of prayer to apply these lessons to the issues that we face as believers and as a church today and even tomorrow. If a church is healthy, we're always gonna be bringing new people into the congregation. We're always gonna be baptizing new people into our fellowship. There's always gonna be people coming from all different walks of life into this fellowship. And with every new person, this whole process starts over again. And that's why Paul says this is so, so important because it's not about what you get from the kingdom of God. You've already received the greatest blessing and that is your salvation. Now it's time to see, what do I have to give back to this movement of the kingdom of God? Yes, I have these liberties in Christ, but I gladly set them aside. If I can walk someone else who's new to the faith through these things to help them to get grounded in their understanding of who they are in Christ and what makes them righteous and what makes them unrighteous, what makes them clean, what is unclean, to help them understand in the context of their relationship with God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the more we work our way into Paul's mindset here that he gives to us in verse or chapter 14, the more we keep this truth at the forefront of how we live. You see, the better we're going to be equipped to demonstrate that genuine love when we think the way Paul has called us to think here. The essence of Christianity is not what all we get from our relationship with Christ. It is centered and focused on the model that Christ set for us where being in the very nature of God, he set that aside, humbled himself and became a servant unto all men. That's what Paul is trying to remind us of. When we get into these little bickering arguments about these third order issues, we're never doing the kingdom of God any purpose. Does that mean we don't hold each other accountable? No, absolutely. I mean, you gotta take scripture in all its context, right? We're to sharpen each other. If you see someone and you think they're acting immorally in any of these issues, they're taking drinking too far, they're taking dancing too far, they're taking the kind of clothes they wear too far in one direction or another, then we need to go to them and say, listen, tell me what's going on in your life. T tell me what your focus is. Tell me what your relationship with Christ is like. Yeah, we're called to keep each other accountable. But see, that's kingdom focus too. It becomes not focused on the kingdom of God when it becomes all about behavior management. Well, you know, you're a Christian. You say you're a Christian, so you shouldn't do this, 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 and this. 
And that's great if it's clearly in scripture, but when we begin to add to it, we begin to take away from the kingdom of God. We must all think about these things, ponder these things, because not only does it affect the way we relate to each other, it affects the way we see ourselves and we see our place in the kingdom. We must all take these truths back to our prayer closet and ask the Holy Spirit, convict me where I have overstepped anything in my life. Help me to be grounded in the freedoms and the restrictions that I have in Christ so that I may be effective in the kingdom of God because life is too short to be focused on third order issues. Let's pray together. God, thank you for a passage that as it develops, it just really helps us to understand what the focus is. You came and died so that we may experience peace and joy and hope. Lord, that hope is not built into this life. The peace, although we experience it to a degree here, will never be like when we see you face to face. And so we know in this life, we thank you, number one, for the freedoms that we have, but number two, Lord, to help us to never take our eyes off of eternity. That's where the kingdom is celebrated. That's where we will eat and drink for thousands of years into eternity at the marriage feast of the lamb. Lord, that's when we will celebrate like our minds can't even understand celebration. So Lord, help us as we await that day to fast, to pray, to celebrate our liberties, but to always be focused on the kingdom, the kingdom with our neighbors, the kingdom at work, the kingdom at school, the kingdom in our own lives as we get so distracted by the things in this life. Lord, call us back, renew our hearts to what salvation really is about. Lord, we have for too long gotten caught up in controversies that do not demand our full attention. Not to say that they're not important because Lord, obviously, as we grow in our spiritual life, you call us to have these conversations. But Lord, may they all be seasoned. May they be contextualized about your kingdom. And your kingdom is about sacrifice. Your kingdom is about giving for the betterment of others. So Lord, help us to embrace the truth of this passage by the power of your spirit. May you add a blessing to the teaching of your word. May it take root in the hearts and lives of your children. May it call the lost to repentance and faith in you. May it help us to set aside our legalism and our liberties to find our cross that we may bear gladly because of the cross you bore for us. Thank you for so great a salvation. May we celebrate that today.